It is a joy to be here this morning and to celebrate not just the installation of Bryson as a new pastor, but to celebrate 28 years of the faithfulness of this church. Uh, I feel like I've already gotten a bit of a Kansas experience. Did some shooting yesterday. We don't shoot too much in California. You probably know why. Newsom doesn't like guns. So uh, we have to come out here, spend some money to shoot. Got some great barbecue. Bryson has a gift. Where are you? There he is. And uh, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever he was in L.A., he never, ever, ever treated me to barbecue. So I don't know what happened, whether it's a Kansas influence or if it's something else, but thank you. It was fantastic. It was wonderful fellowship. I also got a little bit of your storms uh, last night, so that was good. I'm looking forward to some thunder and hopefully lightning. We never get that in L.A. either. And I feel like I have met the Wizard of Oz. And Bart, where's Bart? He's uh, doing fantastic work. So thank you for the ministry that he leads and for all of you and to, to the elders of this church for inviting me to be a part of this wonderful occasion. Uh, my message this morning isn't simply for Bryson as he begins ministry as a pastor here, but really to you as you celebrate 28 years and continue for another multiple decades, Lord willing, a church that will outlast your lifetimes, a church that will be faithful in this community because of the impact that you made with your lives and through your children and through your grandchildren and beyond. And I think the secret to such a ministry is found in John chapter 15. So go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter 15. And as you do that, our pastor did ask me directly to pass on his greetings to this church, to this leadership team. We know of you. We pray for you. We love you. Bart keeps coming back one degree after another, after another, back to the seminary. So we're going to keep seeing his face. Uh, I think the PhD is next. So Amy, get ready. Uh, that's, a, that's a burden. Um, but he, we love you, and we're grateful for your prayers. Bart mentioned briefly about the, the situation back home over the last couple of years when we had the lawsuit with the state and with the county of L.A., and in God's kindness and providence, that's all settled. It'll be two years this coming August when that has been resolved, and I know you were impacted by your own limitations here for a little while, and I thank you for caring for our church and for our seminary, even by sending people back to us, even some of them are in the front row that I see the men that I ministered with in the past. So what a delight to be here with everybody. Let me read for us John chapter 15 as we begin our message. Jesus, after installing and initiating the Lord's Supper, said the following to his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. George Mueller is one of the more famous Christians in church history. He lived in the 1800s and he became known as the man who cared for orphans and as a man of prayer. In his lifetime, he built five orphanages that took care of 10,000 orphans. Within 50 years of his life, over 100,000 orphans were taken care of in England. He did all this while preaching three times a week for nearly 70 years. He was at 70 years of age when he fulfilled his lifelong dream to become a missionary. And at 70, 
He became a missionary, and for the next 17 years, until the, he was 87 years old, he traveled to 42 country, countries, preaching at least once a day, and some estimate he reached nearly 3 million people. He read his Bible in his lifetime over 200 times. All this while having a very vibrant and trial-filled family life. He was married to Mary Gross for 39 years, who gave birth to four children, three of whom died before their first birthday. His daughter married his future successor. She too died before he passed away to heaven. His wife passed away after 39 years. He married Susanna Sanger, and they were married for 23 years, who also passed away before he did. His life was filled with trials and turmoil, and yet he committed his entire life to ministry. As he reflects toward the end of his life about God's work through him, he doesn't list all the successes of ministry, all the sermons that he preached, all the people that he reached, all the countries that he visited. Rather, this is what he says when he reflects on his ministry life. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls happy in God himself. Happiness is to be attained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. You look at a man like George Mueller, and you rightly conclude that he was faithful and fruitful. And we imitate that kind of a life. We should long to imitate that kind of a life. But at the same time, what is the secret to such faithfulness that leads to fruitfulness? And I think the answer is in John chapter 15. Because in verse 11, the ending of this short paragraph, Jesus says... I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The same message that George Mueller just mentioned. Be happy in the Lord. Make sure that your soul is happy in the Lord. Jesus says, everything that I'm teaching you is so that you would have maximum joy in your life. But when Jesus says these words in John chapter 15, in the middle of the upper room discourse, the final hours of his life with his disciples before the crucifixion, shortly after the communion was taken, shortly after Judas has departed to betray him. Jesus here commissions his disciples to a life of ministry, to a life of fruitfulness. We see that in verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So in other words, the message of these verses is that we would live a life as his followers of faithfulness and fruitfulness. And this passage begins with the seventh and the final of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. They are unique to John. I'm sure you know that. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Later in chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And here in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. In verse 5, I am the vine. Jesus picks up this idea of the I am statements from the Old Testament. And by doing so, he aligns himself with the exclusive claims of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, to be the only true and real God. The first time God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says, I am who I am. There's the beginning of this I am idea. In the book of Isaiah, repeatedly God says, I am your Savior. I am the Holy One. I am the Powerful One. I am the sovereign one. I am the creator. And so this I am formula in the Bible takes us back to God the Father. 
by appealing to this phrase seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is actually saying, this is the one who sent me, this is who I identify with, this is who I am. Which is why in John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the response from the Jewish leaders is to pick up stones to kill him. Because they understood the meaning of that theological phrase. Jesus is claiming to be God. And so here Jesus comes in and says, I am the true vine. Now, by doing so, he also appeals to this Old Testament imagery of Israel being the vine. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. That's why God chose Israel to represent him to the Gentile nations so that they would see the majesty and the glory of God through Israel and then be drawn to worship the true God. Israel failed in that regard in the Old Testament. It's described as a fruitless dry, uprooted vine that is ultimately consumed by fire. So when Jesus comes and makes these claims, especially I'm the true vine claim, he's actually saying what Israel failed to do, I am able to fulfill and successfully do. And so the first time he says this to his listeners, he says, I am the one who brings you the bread of life. It's an image of satisfaction. It's an image of fulfillment. It's an image of salvation. Here, though, the focus becomes on Jesus being the true vine. It's a life-giving image. Jesus wants us to think about the relationship that we have with him that is a living relationship, an abiding relationship. A relationship that will result, in verse 8, fruit, much fruit, that ultimately glorifies the Father. And so Jesus says five times in this little section, abide in him. Verse 4, he says it twice. In verse 5, in verse 6, and in verse 7. Then in verse 9 and 10, he says to abide in his love. And in verse 7, he says, let my word abide in you. So Jesus is now focusing not so much on fruit. That's the byproduct. Never in this text does it say to produce fruit. Fruit is the byproduct. It's the result of our abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus chooses words that accentuate this intimate relationship. In verse 4, the first time he says, abide in me, it's a command. It's an urgent command in the original. It says, wake up and listen. This is what you're supposed to do. Abide in me. Now remember this. He is speaking to the faithful 11 disciples. Judas is gone. They are saved. We know that because the word, verse 3 says, cleansed them. The meaning is they are truly his disciples. So he's not trying to pull people into the kingdom of God, into a relationship with himself. He is speaking to people who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to them, he gives an urgent command and says, you need to abide in me. And that abiding needs to continue for the rest of your life. Because when he continues to speak, in verse 5, he says, the one who abides in me. And the grammar there is continuously abides in me. So he goes from this urgent command, you need to pay attention and do this, to then continue to do this in verse 5. And then he'll talk about the negative consequences to those who do not abide in him. And even beyond that, the way John wrote this after he heard Jesus say it, he's trying to put the statements between Jesus' command to abide and the byproduct of that as close as possible. So, for example, in verse 4, if you take a look at it, it says, abide in me and I in you. It doesn't say, and I will abide in you. That's implied. Because if you truly abide in Jesus, Jesus will abide in you. It's this intimate grammatical construction that is intended to help us understand true abiding results in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to a fruitful ministry, a fruitful life for Jesus Christ. But beyond that, look at how Jesus 
transitions. In verse 6, he says, if anyone. In verse 7, if you. This isn't just for the masses. This is for you. Jesus looks at his disciples in the eye and basically says, Peter, you abide in me. John, you abide in me. Matthew, you abide in me. Thomas, you abide in me. Every single individual needs to abide in Jesus Christ, and then the results follow. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Let me give you a definition of what it looks like to abide in Jesus Christ. It means to be in a close, vibrant, life-giving relationship with Him that puts you into a position to be held by Him and as you attach yourself to Him. It's a close, vibrant, life-giving relationship that puts you in a place to be held by Him as you attach yourself to him. John Owen, one of the Puritans, said it this way. To abide in Christ is to be always near to Christ. In the spiritual company of Christ. And in communication with Christ. To abide in Christ, it's to be in his presence through your mind. So there's an intellectual commitment. You think about Christ. You meditate on Christ. Through scripture. Secondly, John Owen says, through your obedience, every single thing that he says we do. And finally, with your affections. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With your affections. It's mental. It's with your heart. And it's with, through your obedience. That's how we do it. But I'd like to focus this morning on why we do it. Ultimately, it's a life of fruitfulness. But there are a few other promises that Jesus makes in this paragraph to his disciples in order to encourage them to abide in Jesus Christ. Because if we're honest, it's not always easy to abide in Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to come to church on time or to serve in a specific ministry capacity or to maybe give money to the STM or to a long-term missionary than to actually invest hours, many, many hours every single week, into a personal time with Jesus Christ. That is characterized by prayer and scripture reading and scripture memorization and scripture meditation. It's not always easy to discipline yourself amidst a busy, busy life to do exactly what Jesus is commanding his disciples to do. And so my encouragement for us this morning comes in the form of four promises that Jesus makes to his disciples that result from abiding in him. If you abide in Jesus, first Jesus promises that you will be fruitful. I already mentioned that as the main idea, specifically tying it to the celebration today, a faithful church, a fruitful church, a fruitful and a faithful pastor. But Jesus says to his disciples, you will be fruitful. Fruit is mentioned six times in this paragraph. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. And then emphatically Jesus says in verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. In other words, unless you abide in me, you will not fulfill any kind of fruit that is God glorifying. But we have to understand this, that Jesus isn't asking his disciples or us to do anything that he himself wasn't modeling. If you look back to chapter 14... And in John 14, verse 10, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So now Jesus introduces us to his own abiding relationship with the Father that is demonstrated by his works. So Jesus says, this is how I was able to accomplish three years of ministry in Israel. It's because the Father was abiding in me. And I was just simply doing what he was asking me to do, commanding me to do. And those are the works that were apparent to everyone. His entire ministry 
has been traced back by him to an abiding relationship with the Father. So when Jesus says to us, abide in me, and you will be fruitful, for example, verse 4, unless a branch abides in the vine, it cannot produce fruit. The reason that Jesus is able to be so dogmatic about that promise, you will be fruitful, is because back in chapter 14, verse 13, he says this, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In verse 7 of our section, chapter 15, he says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and I will do it. That's why Jesus is able to say so clearly and so confidently that if you abide in me, you will be fruitful because he's the one performing the works through us. That's why he's able to be so confident in the promise. As the Father was working through him, Christ is working through us. But Jesus isn't the only one committed to this promise to make us fruitful. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he, the Father now, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So now you have the Son committed to our fruitful life. And now you have the Father also working in us, in our lives, to make sure that we are even more fruitful. Both of the members of the Trinity are actively working in our lives to produce a faithful and a fruitful life. Jesus is that vine that supplies the life to the branches. He sustains us. He feeds us. His life flows through us. Then God comes around the Father. And he looks at your life, and he sees areas of spiritual defect, areas of sin, areas of weakness, whether it be laziness or perhaps actual private sin. And he comes in, and he prunes. Pruning isn't ever painless, right? It hurts. But Hebrews 12 says, that's how you know you're a son? Is when God disciplines you. That's the pruning effect in our lives. But the goal of that isn't to cause us pain. It's not because God is sadistic. It's because verse 2 says he wants us to be even more fruitful. Just imagine the agricultural analogy. We prune vegetation around us. I don't do that because all we have is concrete in Los Angeles. But I see a lot of green greenery as I was driving here from Wichita. You do that because you want that tree, that rose to be more fruitful. That's why God is working in our lives. But Jesus doesn't only explain the positive effects of abiding. He gives us the negative consequences of not abiding in him. Back in verse 2, he says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit he takes away. In verse 6, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. See, God is the keeper of the garden. We are in that garden. We are that garden. And we're supposed to be fruitful for the glory of God. And the ones that are not fruitful, Jesus says, God prunes and ultimately may cut off. Just as you would cut off a dead branch on a tree, God is pruning his garden. Now the imagery here is graphic. Some have interpreted these words as if we're talking about losing your eternal rewards. So if you're not faithful, you're not obedient, you're not abiding, you're going to lose your eternal reward. The problem with that interpretation is that the imagery here of being burned collected, thrown away, is too graphic for just a simple loss of eternal reward. Others have interpreted this passage as if to say this is about losing your salvation. So you're in the vineyard, but you're not producing anything, and so ultimately you lose your salvation. God casts you out. The problem with that interpretation is John chapter 6 and John chapter 10, where Jesus says, all those who come to me I will not cast out, and those who do come to me, I will certainly resurrect on the last day. So there's no gap 
between true salvation and ultimate glorification in resurrection. John chapter 10 is even more forceful to that promise. In verse 28, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never, ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So now the promise in chapter 10, Jesus, the good shepherd who extends and confers eternal life unto his sheep, is that once you have eternal life, it's truly eternal, and you will never, ever lose it. So then verse chapter 15 cannot come in and undermine or negate that promise. So now the loss of salvation cannot be the right interpretation of this text. What I think Jesus means is the simple explanation. You have people in the vineyard, in the church, who are associating themselves with Christ, but aren't attached to Christ. They're not abiding in Christ. And so they have cleaned themselves up like a nice Christmas tree. For a week or two, the Christmas tree is still green, right? I know it's been five months, I get it, but remember Christmas, think back, five months. Well, it's nice for about two weeks. But then two weeks later, I mean, you can do CPR on it. You can do whatever. It's going to die because it's been detached from the root. So, yeah, for a little while, a person can associate with the church, with Christians, with Christ, and look as if he is authentic, she is authentic. But Jesus says the secret and the actual meaning is are you abiding? Are you attached? And those who are not ultimately will be demonstrated as fruitless. And ultimately will be cut off and will be collected and will be thrown away and burned. That is a reference to the final judgment. So yes, the example is even pertinent to the disciples of Jesus. Of the twelve, there was one who was associating for three years. And he was so trusted that he became the treasurer or the CFO of the group. He had the money box. You typically entrust the money in the church or in your organization to somebody who is extremely dependable, right? Trustworthy. Otherwise, you're foolish if you're giving it to somebody who is the liar and the cheat and the thief. In other words, Judas was able to convince the, the disciples to be the treasurer, his association with Christ, going on the short-term ministry trips in Matthew 10, for example, was such that even in the upper room, when Jesus tells him, go and do quickly what you're going to do, what are the disciples thinking? That he was going to give some alms to the poor because he had the money box. Not that he would go and betray Jesus. Even to the final moment, in the most intimate setting, the upper room, he was able to be so convincing to his fellow disciples, and yet he wasn't attached. Jesus' warning is serious, and it's stark, and it impacts his own disciples. And so Jesus says to them, abide in me, and the result is you will produce fruit. Verse 8, much Fruit that is glorifying to the Father. Abundant fruit. In chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, You will do greater works than these, than the ones he did. What does that mean? How can you do greater works as a human being than Jesus himself? What Jesus is talking about there, there's only one other place in the Gospel of John where greater works are discussed. Chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Jesus is talking about eternal life. In chapter 5, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals a man by the pool of Bethesda who was lame for 38 years. Remember that story? And he was kind of laid there by his relatives, hoping that as the water stirs, there was this um, legend, that if the water stirs, that's an angel popping in, and then the water becomes magical, and whoever falls in first or gets pushed in or jumps in, he'll be healed. That was kind of the ancient Jewish uh, legend. And so this man has been lying there for 38 years hoping that somebody would push him the next time the water stirs. And so Jesus shows up in John 5 and says, you want to walk? Now what do you do if you haven't walked for 38 years? How would you respond? No, I'm kind of comfortable right now lying down. Can you come back in an hour or so? 
and he jumps, and Jesus heals him, and it's over. Fast forward a few verses. The, this, the Jewish leaders are persecuting Jesus because he did that miracle on the Sabbath. That was anathema in their mind. And so Jesus finds this man and tells him, don't sin or something worse will happen to you. Referring to final judgment. Now, right after that, Jesus says, you marvel that I made this man walk. But greater works than these you will see. And he starts talking about eternal life being extended to people. Spiritual life, forgiveness, and salvation from judgment. So the greater works are tied to the extent of eternal life. Being a participant in conferring eternal life to other people. What chapter 14 verse 12 means, you will do greater works than these, is as follows. Jesus has given his followers the responsibility to extend through the message of the gospel, the message of eternal life. The story is complete. In John 5, the cross hasn't happened yet. The crucifixion hasn't happened. The resurrection hasn't happened. The story is incomplete. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, the story is complete, and we have that story. We have that message. Imagine delivering the gospel without the resurrection. If that's still forthcoming. If he was still in the grave today. But that's the point. Jesus says the greater work is that you will be participants in extending eternal life to people in your community. But you will only be able to do that effectively if you abide in me. That's the expectation, and that is the promise. And the standard of fruitfulness and faithfulness isn't your neighbor. It's not your pastor. It's not your elder. It's not your parent. It's Christ himself. Because in chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says this in verse 4. Praying to the Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So in 15.8, he says, you will glorify the Father. And of himself and his responsibility to bring the gospel into this world, Jesus says, I've done it. I've glorified you. So that's the standard. The way Jesus worked, the way Jesus served, the way Jesus produced fruit for the name of the Father and to the glory of the Father, that is our standard. And how committed was Jesus to this cause? In chapter 8, verse 29, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, there's never an opportunity not to do what is pleasing to him. That's the standard. That's the expectation. And that can happen according to Jesus if we abide in him. Will you be able to come to the end of your life? And quote the words of Paul from 2 Timothy 4.7. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, I'm just awaiting for the crown. That's the expectation. That's the promise from Jesus. You will be fruitful only if you abide in him. But there's a second promise. And that is a promise of assurance. In verse 8, Jesus says, not only will you glorify the Father through your fruit, plentiful fruit, but you will also prove to be my disciples. You'll prove to be my disciples. That is assurance. There are three times in the Gospel of John that Jesus focuses on the genuineness of one's salvation or discipleship. In chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says to the Jewish people who were listening to him and some who had professed belief in him. He says, if you continue in my word, the word is abide. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So now the genuineness of your discipleship is tested by continuation in the word of God. Chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
So now love for other believers is a test of the genuineness of one's salvation. And this is the third and only other reference in the Gospel of John where Jesus speaks about the genuineness of someone's salvation. If you glorify the Father through much fruit, that will prove that you are my disciple. And that is traced back again to abiding. Now, these three passages, 831, 1335, and then 158, must be understood through the lens of what's happening in the Gospel of John that would have prompted Jesus to say that. You see, back in chapter 6, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. And then he gives them a sermon. And he says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. The Father, God the Father, His Father, gave manna to the generation in the wilderness. But He says, but it wasn't Moses. It was really my Father who was supplying food to them. Now, I am the true bread from heaven. And so He teaches this to this, the masses. There's thousands and thousands, a couple dozen thousand people most likely, gathered listening to Jesus and having just been fed by Jesus. And after he says that, it says in verse 60 of chapter 6, many of his disciples, we're not talking about the 12, there was a bigger number of his disciples, at least 70, we know that from the other gospels, but probably even beyond that. People who were professing to be Jesus' followers. General term, many of his disciples, when they heard this saying, what is the saying? I am the bread of life. Eat me, feed on me, drink my blood, eat my flesh. That's the teaching of chapter 6. When they heard this, verse 60, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Verse 66. As a result, many of his disciples walked away and no longer followed him. Now, put yourself in John 6. You've just been fed, free. You have to understand the first century world, 93% of the people worked just to survive sun up to sundown there was no plan for retirement there was no plan for vacation there was no plan for a yacht or a vacation house it was just survival mode so if somebody shows up to give you free bread that you don't have to work that day for that's a pretty good guy and so you are in that scene with jesus and now you're listening to him and all of a sudden you're one of those disciples who says i don't think i want to commit to that even if it means free bread, even if it means all these healings, I don't want to commit to that. So they walked away. In that moment, Jesus, it says, looks at his disciples, verse 67, and asks them, do you not also wish to go away? It's almost as if Jesus is in this emotional angst. Everybody is leaving him. And so he's surrounded just by the twelve. And he asks them directly, are you also going to abandon me? Are you also going to defect? And Peter speaks up and says, to whom will we go? Verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. But then it says, but Judas would ultimately walk away. What was it? That Jesus was asking the masses to do that ultimately caused them to abandon him. The answer is in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus was calling the people to an abiding relationship. And when you understand how difficult that can be in life, you actually may be tempted to walk away from Christ. Many did that on that day. That is the cost of the abiding relationship. It's not simply showing up to church or reading your Bible in the morning or offering a simple prayer at night. No, there's a cost to this abiding relationship. But if you do abide in Christ, Jesus says, you will demonstrate that you are truly my disciple. You can have confidence that you are going to heaven. It was the same John who would write 1 John in chapter 5 would say, I've written these things to you so that you may know for sure that you have eternal life. That he just introduced people to in the gospel. You see, there is a cost to following Jesus. The disciples would pay that cost. You know that. Peter would be crucified upside down. 
the other disciples were also martyred other than John who spent time on Patmos for his faithfulness. But the encouragement from Christ to abide in him is, in, is demonstrated not just by a life of fruitfulness, but also by true assurance. But there's a third promise that Jesus makes in John 15, that if you abide, not only will you be fruitful, not only will you have assurance that you're a believer, but third, you will experience the love of Christ. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, The Father loved me, I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Nine times in chapter 15, Jesus talks about love. 31 times in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus talks about love. The first verse of the farewell discourse, chapter 13, verse 1, and the very last verse of the farewell discourse, chapter 17, verse 26, feature love as the primary idea. And then 29 other times in those chapters, Jesus talks about love. What do you think the main point of chapters 13 through 17 is? Love. Love for Christ and love from Christ. He's talking to his disciples immediately, but by extension to us. And in the Gospel of John, God's love is a love that discloses all things to Christ and to his disciples. In verse 16, he'll say that. In verse 15, he'll say that. I haven't held anything back that the Father has taught me. So there's an information that's exchanged. Jesus Christ reveals the Father to those whom he loves. But in other parts of Scripture, we understand that God's love is unending. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 39 says, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's a love that doesn't let go. Psalm 23, verse 6, that. It accompanies us all the way to the Father's house for eternity. And so that's the kind of love that Jesus is speaking of. It's a love in chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, that ultimately lays down his life for his friends. We know that, the anticipation of the cross. And so Jesus says, this is the kind of love that I am extending to you. But you will only experience it if, verse 10, you keep my commandments. You keep my word, and you let my word abide in you. He already said that back in verse 7. Why such an emphasis on the word? Back in verse 3, he says, you're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Well, it takes us back to chapter 13. That's the only other previous reference to cleansing, right? Verse 3 says, you've been cleansed. The last time Jesus talked about cleansing was when he was washing the feet of his disciples. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, you will never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter says, fine, then I want a full shower. And Jesus says, hold up here. I'm only going to wash your feet. But he says something interesting in verses 10 and 11. He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet but it's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And he, in verse 11 says, was referring to Judas. So what we see happening here is this. The word is what cleanses us, brings us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Initial repentance, initial washing by the word. Titus 3 talks about that. Ephesians 5 talks about that. So we are cleansed, but then we live this life and we sin and we need repeated confession and repeated repentance in order to continue to be in a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. But when Jesus says, not all of you are clean, the word hasn't cleansed Judas. Now the question is, what is the implication for that? What actually would have prompted Judas to give up three years with Christ and betray him? Well, in chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders as they argue about whose descendants they are, Abraham's or not Abraham's. And Jesus says to him, I know you are Abraham's, parentheses, physical descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The idea being the word of God has not entered your life and accomplished its ultimate purpose for which it was sent. 
Oftentimes we quote Isaiah 55 before an evangelistic effort. As your word goes out, it doesn't come back void. Right? It accomplishes its purpose. That's the idea with that verse. As the word of God enters somebody's life, it has to accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. In that case, in the Jewish leaders' minds, it hasn't accomplished that purpose. We can therefore surmise and conclude that in the life of Judas, because he wasn't cleansed by the word, 15.3, and he was willing to betray Jesus and kill him, that's chapter 8, verse 37. My word doesn't have a place in you, therefore you're going to kill me. That's Judas leading the charge in order to kill Jesus. He did not allow the word of God to take up residence and to fulfill its function in his life. That is a concern for those who hear sermons every single week. Because he heard the best preacher for three years. And he saw miracles that none of us have ever seen. And he saw bread being made out of nothing. And it's a life being given to people like Lazarus or the young man in Luke 7. He saw all that. But it didn't matter how many sermons he heard. It didn't matter that he had Christian friends, the disciples. It didn't matter that he was literally living in the same place as Jesus for three years. It didn't matter that he had such an important ministry responsibility as the treasurer. The titles didn't matter. The office in the church didn't matter. The sermons didn't matter. What mattered is that he did not allow the word of God to enter his life and take control. And this is an amazing church. It's a faithful church. 28 years strong. Thank you to those of you who started it 28 years ago. And I hope you are enjoying the fruit of your decision and your prayers and your effort. And I know some of you are still here. And as you pray for this church, pray that the sermons that you hear from faithful men every single week would take up residence and fulfill the purpose for which God sent it. That will keep you abiding in Christ. That will keep you from pulling a Judas. That is what Jesus is ultimately saying. You will experience his love through obedience to his word. And finally... All of this climaxes in joy. Verse 11, I read it towards the beginning of our message. You will have maximum joy. My level of joy, Jesus says. So if you're looking to live a life of joy, make sure that your soul is happy in the Lord, as George Mueller said. If that's your goal, if you want to be satisfied with Christ alone, Ultimately, what Jesus is saying, you need to abide in him. And joy is tied to a life of fruitful ministry. The first time joy appears is in the context of John the Baptist standing next to Jesus in John chapter 3 and being a groomsman who rejoices because the bride and the groom are about to marry. Next time it appears in chapter 4 when the woman of Samaria... She goes to her village of Sikar, tells all the villagers that Jesus is the Savior. They come back. They declare he is the Savior of the world. And then it says in verse 36, and there's joy. In Luke 15, you know the parables. The woman who finds the last coin, the man who found the last sheep, and then the father who found the last son. Joy is mentioned in every single story. Because there is a connection between joy and fruitful ministry. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples. You want to have a life of maximum joy, my kind of joy, he says? Then commit to ministry. And here is what happens. We've been talking about abiding in Jesus this whole time. But in chapter 14... As Jesus continues to speak to his disciples, he abided in his father. The father produced much work through him. And then he turns to his disciples and says this. I'm going to send you the spirit when I go away. He's going to be with you. He's going to abide with you forever. And in that day, you will know that I am in the father and you are in me and I am in you. And if anyone loves me and keeps my word... My father loves loves him, and we will come to him and make an abiding place with him. 
So here's the response from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. If you abide in Christ, the entire Trinity comes in and takes up residence in your life forever. That's the joy, is to have this intimate relationship. Every single member is individually mentioned in chapter 14 to demonstrate that you have a unique relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. They don't get conflated into one God and then you're just gonna, this, the Trinity disappears. No, each member plays a specific function in your life in order to encourage you and sustain your abiding efforts in Christ Jesus. Until this all culminates in eternity. Because in Revelation chapter 22, the same John picks up the same language of abiding. And he says, we show up at the Father's house. And he says in verse 3, the tabernacle or the abiding place of God is with men. And he will dwell among them and they will be his people and he himself will be among them. And they will see his face. The climax of chapter 15 isn't simple, faithful, fruitful living in this life. It's not simple love. It's not simply assurance that you're a Christian. It's not simply joy. It's a reminder and a promise that one day you will dwell in heaven with the entire trinity that's the ultimate abiding place that's the destination that's what psalm 23 verse 6 promised his loving kindness will accompany me in this life until i appear in the house of the lord to dwell there forever so as you continue for the next 30 years 60 90 the one-year-olds will make it to 90 years the f your faithfulness and your fruitfulness is tied to your abiding relationship in Christ. Let me encourage you and Bryson with John chapter 15 and those words. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for John. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the reminder to abide in our Savior. And I pray for this church that they would continue to do so as they have for nearly 30 years to be faithful in their community, to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost, save many because of their faithfulness, and produce much fruit to their joy and to your glory. Amen.